mind-wandering state of the brain when um, people are, you know, thinking about what they did. And their mission is really to promote creativity and creativity research in society pretty, pretty broadly. Positive emotion is far better for creativity than negative emotion is. Welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. I'm Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And Chris and I are on a mission to lift the veil on creativity and business through the lens of ideas, stories, and visual cognition. And today's guest, as part of our neuro-creativity season, is Professor Roger Beatty. He is Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychology from Penn State College of the Liberal Arts. And this show is the result of many hours online trying to track each other down and arrange this session, so we're so excited. Uh, Roger is one of the greats of neuroscience and the understanding of creativity. He has uh, published research and a deep, deep understanding of the three neural networks, the default network, the exec control network, the salient network, and I, I certainly has opened the door to our understanding of how the brain is creative and how to manage your own creativity. Yeah, it's great. And one of the things that I took away from it, Chris, was this thing about focusing on the detail, uh, which, again, Roger will explain. So let's get Roger on. Let's get him in. Roger Beattie, welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're delighted to have you on the show, Roger. So, Roger, uh, just to start off, tell us, how did you get into the line of work that you're in about uh, psychology and neuroscience of creativity? So yeah, I um, was first interested in the topic. Well, I've been interested in creativity for a long time. I've played music ever since I was a, a little little kid. And, um, but I didn't actually know that you could study creativity as a science until I got into college. So I took a course on uh, the psychology of creativity and innovation with Dr. Robert Weisberg. Um, and that was when I first kind of came to, to realize that this was a, a formal uh area of inquiry in, in, in science. And so I was really excited by that and um, went about kind of helping out as a research assistant and my, uh, you know, as a college student and getting, getting my head wrapped around some of the questions you could ask in the psychology of creativity. And kind of from there, just, just went off and tried to, to find my own way in graduate school and uh, the topics that I was interested in and then kind of gravitated more towards neuroscience. But I felt like my, my questions that I were really driving me was, really coming from from the brain and um so that's kind of yeah what, what led me then to kind of focus more on the neuroscience of creativity so um look one of the things uh, i first um became aware of you from an article that that you had written about the three networks um which is the, the debunk of the old left hand right hand brain sort of thing and look and i suppose it's could you just tell us about that to start with you know what what what's going on there yeah, so uh, first, I guess, is the, the left versus right brain uh, theory, which I think really is kind of debunked at this point. I mean, it's, it's been around for a long time, and, you know, there's it's something I think people want to be true for some reason. I'm not, I'm not sure why, <laughs> but that's kind of one of those things in science that people just kind of hold on to. And, um, I mean, there's some there's a reason why some of it has, you know, that was put forward in the first place. I mean, there's you would see some kind of, uh, right tendencies in the brain for some creative tasks. And there's a theory around that. And so, you know, it has some support in a very narrow sense. But more broadly, 
you know, I, I view creativity, and I think a lot of the evidence is, is suggesting is really a, a whole brain enterprise. I mean, there's a lot of um, things happening in the brain when people are thinking creatively. They're drawing on their memory. They're focusing. They're kind of shifting their 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 focus around, um, drawing on past experiences, simulating possibilities. There's really a lot happening when it comes to to creative thinking, and so. Uh, what we have shown is that there are three uh, major brain networks um, that really support a range of of cognition. And this is not just creativity. This is really a lot of what the brain does. It just happens to be the uh, particular interaction of these three networks that um, is uh, conducive to creative thinking. And so you mentioned the three networks. So there's I'll kind of introduce them in turn. So there's the default. Uh, mode network, uh, which got its name from being kind of like a, a state that the, the brain returns to by default when we're not um, particularly focused on anything in, in the environment. It's just kind of like a default um, brain state. Um, it's very kind of in, in a metabolic sense, like what the brain is doing and what the um, patterns of activity are when people are just kind of relaxing. And that was picked up in a brain scanner um, back when neuroscientists were just kind of poking around and trying to see... Um, Mostly they're interested in, in what people are doing when they were on task, but they kind of found this pattern that was recurring when people were off task. And it was really this kind of mind wandering state of the brain when, when um, people are, you know, thinking about what they did earlier in the day and um, imagining what they might do later. And these kind of very memory based, personal, uh, introspective kind of um, states um, and so that network was discovered a couple of decades ago, and it's been, there's been a lot of interest in understanding kind of the neuroanatomy of it and kind of um, its general uh, uh, function. And, you know, we have found that regions within the default network are engaged when people are, are thinking creatively. Um, and that makes sense when you think about, you know, what the network does in general. Like I said, there's this kind of spontaneous, internally focused aspect of the, of the default network. Um, when people are, you know, drawing on memory and um, simulating possibilities and that kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of one state of the brain that we've found that is um, associated with, with creativity. And another is um, perhaps kind of uh, the opposite of, of that network, which is the executive control network. And uh, that network is um, engaged when we're kind of focusing our attention on a challenging task. Uh, instead of being kind of inwardly focused, there's more of an external focus and more of, um, yeah, kind of trying to solve problems and, uh, and kind of focus our attention on a, on a given task. And um, back to the kind of classic neuroscience literature, I mean, there's this um, what's been uh, found as an, an antagonistic relationship between the default network and the control network when people are kind of inwardly focused and, and thinking spontaneously about whatever they like, you have a default network um, coming online. And um, when there's the reverse of that, which is focusing on a task and trying to really kind of um, not have distra distracting thoughts coming and um, popping into your brain, you tend to see more of this control network. And so uh, we found that there's an interaction between those two when people are thinking creatively, um, as well as a third network, which is called the salience network, which plays a role in kind of switching between those two. Um, and the salience network got its name from uh, picking up on salient information in the environment and in internally. So 
um, something that might grab our attention. It could be a, a possible um, fruitful idea that has been bubbling up from the default network. And um, from there, we've kind of have come up with this framework and way of thinking about how these networks might interact uh, when people are thinking creatively. So it might go something like a generative process within the default network where people are more or less spontaneously generating ideas. Uh, salience network may play a role in kind of grabbing onto something that seems promising. And then the control network might actually uh, refine and test that idea out or see if it's actually going to work. So it's, these in, it's this interplay between these three networks that seems to, to play a role in creative thinking uh, based on our research. Roger, my, my, I don't know which network it is, but it's buzzing because <laughs> <laughs> maybe I imagine it's the executive network right now. But thank you so much for that. But I, I guess the question that begs this all this amazing analysis of the brain begs is, is there a way of managing or controlling which network is in play? We've spoken, for example, to Moshe Barr about mind wandering and almost celebrating those moments when you wander off and you, you think, you know, you're in a kind of daydreaming kind of, kind of mode. But I'm, I'm thinking, it's interesting, you talked about the salient network is something that grabs something that seems promising. Imagine if you could train the salient network, or, or maybe you can. So my question is, can you develop different networks and manage them and become more creative that way? Maybe, yeah. I think that's something that we're looking into more and more these days. Um, you know, like I, I've, you know, I've been doing this research for a few years right uh, by now, and that's been kind of a persistent question to me: is well, what can we do about this? And I've been mostly looking at it through the lens of through education and seeing if there's kind of a more of a, a systematic way of integrating creativity into um, the education system to kind of have a more long-lasting, sustained form of cognitive training instead of more of a, more of a short-term. Um, way of thinking about cognitive training, although it very well may be that there are ways that you can boost your creativity on a, on a kind of a um, shorter time scale. So kind of going back to what you're saying in terms of the salience network and um, training, being uh, good at picking up at ideas, picking up on good ideas, I feel like that is something that has some room for potential, and that is kind of discerning what may, what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. So it could be that kind of through practice, through kind of iterating and, and get, getting more of a sense of what are ideas that are going to actually um, kind of pan out or um, have some kind of legs to them versus um, ideas that might um, not be so fruitful. I mean, it, it's, it's hard, to, hard to say always kind of how the ideas will play out, um, but through kind of more experience and more training, that could be something that would be a, a promising avenue. Roger, do you think that might be um, just even the, the awareness of this? You know, because there's a whole thing, and you know, I'm sure you've come across it where people go, "I don't have a creative bone in my body." Uh, you know, and 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 both Chris and I are also on the mission to you know get people to realise that's not true. But I just wonder. I, I actually coined a phrase, pragmatility, which is the the spectrum of pragma, pragmatic thinking on one end and and creative thinking on the other. But we're always somewhere in between. You know, we're always sliding. But you, so do you think that sort of, you know, the work that you're doing to bring the awareness to go, oh, okay, so that's what's happening in my brain. So it's okay for me to be distracted or it's okay for me to be thinking critically when I'm trying to be creative. Like, do you think that helps? Like, does it help you? Like, does it help you in your music, for instance? Um, 
No, I, actually, I think that is a, a promising avenue. Like simply just educating people on what we know about the creative process and that everyone can be creative in their own way. I mean, there's the concept of creative self-efficacy. I don't know if this has come up at all in your conversations no, with it others, hasn't. but just, yeah, just kind of seeing yourself as a, as a creative person or someone who can solve creative problems. Uh, there's a scale for it that, that measures, you know, the extent to which people see themselves as creative and kind of capable of meeting these creative challenges. And, you know, I think most people have an association of creativity as something that's not them. It's for the arts and whatever. And kind of, consistent with what you're saying, I think just simply educating and giving examples of everyday creativity that we're all engaged in all the time to kind of solve problems and, and think outside of our normal ways of thinking. I think just simply that as a really subtle way of uh, reminding people that they can be creative and they, they have a potential to do that is, is pretty powerful in its own right. I I'd often challenge people if they say they're not creative to Tell me what they do when they're doing a recipe and they run out. I haven't got one ingredient there. They always go, oh, I try something exactly. in the cupboard. That's an act of mm -hmm. creativity right there. And, and yet they'll say, I'm not creative. Yeah, you know, that's actually on a scale that we, we use pretty often to measure. There's culinary creativity. Is, is That's one of the, uh, the questions that we'll ask people about their everyday um, creative activities and, and hobbies is, do you come up with recipes? You know, that, that's, like an, yeah. that's a normal way. Like, I don't know, right now in the U.S., there's... Halloween, right? So coming up with a creative costume for your kids, that was something I was just engaged in myself. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, right, of course. Wait, so, yeah. you know, you, yeah, that in Halloween, itself, of you can, there's so many, like, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to go trick-or-treating after this interview, actually. <laughs> First time for my two-year-old. Oh, well, we, we have, um, it's becoming bigger and bigger in Australia, Halloween. So we had it last night. So my, my daughter was out trick-and-treating. Uh, so, uh, oh, nice. but so, what's the scale? Is, is it a scale that you have that you publish or something? Is that um, something that you 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 talked about that scale that you have about how creative people are? What what is that scale? Right. So, there's two other that I, that came up. One was a creative self-efficacy scale, and that measures how much people see themselves as a creative person or capable of solving creative challenges and coming up with ideas. And there's another one that's called the scale of short scale of creative self i believe I, I could share it with you um and there is a, a, a several different scales that measure creative hobbies and achievements and that would be the kind of cooking is is one of them and, and visual arts and music and any kind of creative domain you could imagine um would be under the umbrella of these kind of scales um but there's I mean, you've probably come across like big c and little c creativity Mm -hmm. So big C being the kind of professional level, like people are doing this for work or at a, in a more, um, uh, yeah, professional capacity versus those who just kind of have um, hobbies that they, they enjoy and they, they, they uh, have a range of, th of things that they, they do that would be considered creative from building a website to even being like a coach or something under this, um, under some of these, these scales will kind of conceptualize even mentoring and, and coaching as, as a creative act. Have you seen the uh, Adobe Creative Types survey? Um, no, I haven't actually, no. It, check it out. It, it's really good fun. It's got great uh, graphics in it. And um, But one of the things that's really amazing, and Chris and I use it at the start of our masterclasses, and we say, we ask everyone to do it because there's 10 creative types um, and there's no 11th, 
thing. I'm not creative, <laughs> you know. So you, you have to get allocated one <laughs> no sort of creative type. Yeah, yeah. So so when people come into the workshop, they, it's a pre-work thing. You know, they've got a creative type, so they're already in this headset, you know, that or the he- mindset that they have a creative type. So, yeah, it's really good fun, actually. Check it out. How you... How you apply this to yourself? I mean, you meant it's Halloween. Uh, we, we're already in November right here in Australia, but of course it's still Halloween in Pennsylvania. Um, so, so you're a two-year-old, you're going to go trick-or-treating, you need to find a costume. Is there any part of you that goes, oh, I'm going to flick into this network because I need a really cool hat? Or, or is it just your dad and that's the way you would... Do you, uh, tell me more about how you personally create, or maybe it's better to talk about music. How does it influence you personally? Mm. Well, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I like call on my, my brain networks, like on, on demand to like switch and, <laughs> yeah. and, and do their <laughs> kind of do their thing. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm like introspecting like often about how my own mind is working when I'm doing different things that you could call creative, um, you know, with music, if I'm, you know, I like to improvise on the, on the piano. So, I mean, just last night I was, I was playing some music and I was, you know, kind of just pondering, you know, why I was going in different directions and, you know, being inspired in different ways and having ideas pop into mind. And improvisation is a, uni- a unique case, I think. Um, you know, it's not like other types of, of creativity where you have more time and space to revise, edit, kind of, you know, uh, reflect on what you're doing. You can do some of that with improvisation, but it's happening really quickly. I mean, if you're playing with a group, especially, you really have to, to respond and be, you know, very reactive and, and just kind of be intuitive and, and spontaneous. Um, but, you know, like that comes with practice. And I, I would also say that even though that seems like perhaps the most spontaneous form of creativity that would not really call for this more controlled executive aspect of, of thinking, I think there's still room for some of that. When you think about, I mean, there's an interesting study that came out in uh, I think 2016 or 2015, where they compared um, improvising musicians and, um, and a brain scanner, fMRI, and they asked them to either improvise based on a specific emotional um, prompt, like joy or, or sadness, or to only improvise based on certain keys on their keyboard. So they got these really, um, MRI-compatible keyboards because you're in a giant magnet. You can't have anything that's metal in there. So they have to specially make these with engineers that come in and make these uh, keyboards specifically for this purpose. Um, and what they found was that during the condition where musicians had to improvise based on a specific emotional um, prompt, they found increased connectivity between the executive control network and the default mode network compared to the condition where they only could use certain keys to improvise, which was more um, executive and, and motor planning areas. And basically what the way they interpreted that was that when they're kind of improvising or musicians are improvising based on emotions, um, that's more of an internally focused um, process, which was why you would see this default network coming online. But you also have a coordination with the control, um, executive control network because you're trying to constrain or uh, constrain your uh, performance in a certain way to make it sound like something. So you're keeping the goal in mind of, I want this to sound like I'm, you know, um, you know, feeling really happy or in a a more, um, you know, subdued state or something. You're kind of keeping that engaged in your mind that is influencing the more spontaneous aspects of ideas that could be coming up to, 
uh, and in, in the form of melodies, if that makes sense. So if it was purely spontaneous and you're just, which it can be maybe sometimes if you don't have a goal in mind of, for improvisation, then maybe that's just a purely default mode network kind of thing. Mm. I think it's probably still more complicated than that, but the extent to which you are trying to make your performance to, to kind of influence it in some way or to kind of keep it on some track, um, that's one a more kind of controlled aspect of, of thinking might be coming online, if that makes it's, any sense. Reminds me of a point one of our other guests made, um, a lady called Michelle Locke, and she suggested that we are more likely to come up with ideas when the brain is in a positive state of mind, I mean, kind of happy state of mind. And uh, mm-hmm. It, it, it seems to connect with this idea that a kind of a, power, a strong emotion is a is a good thing to help you create. And I'm I'm drawing a bow now to yeah. the world of business, where you know people might organise some kind of creative workshop, and you try and brainstorm ideas for X or Y or Z. And what I'm wondering, therefore, is if it would be a good sort of warm up or set up process to get people happy or get people into a certain emotional state. Mm-hmm. so as to unlock yep. the interaction between those different networks and therefore generate better ideas. I mean, is, is there any logic to that thought process? I, I think so. I mean, at least, you know, from my reading of the literature, I mean, there's this whole idea of the, you know, the mad genius and the tortured artist that's having, yeah. you know, really struggling with their emotions. And, you know, there might very well be some, some artists throughout history that have had struggled with, you know, mental illness. And um, that's, that is what it is, but I think the literature is showing that positive emotion is far better for creativity than negative emotion is. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense if you think about, you know, kind of if, if you're in a negative mood, you're kind of more constrained in your focus, you're not really inspired in, in all of these things. And, you know, the literature really does seem there's been reviews on this by now that positive emotion is associated with, with creativity. And we've shown mm-hmm. this actually in daily life ourselves. We've asked people, um, in, you know, we've used kind of smartphone apps to do what's called experience sampling. We've asked them in their mm-hmm. daily life, like right now, are you doing something creative? Yes or no. And how happy are you? And we've asked a, a bunch of other questions too, but we found a, a, a strong correlation between when people say they're doing something creative, they're feeling much better. They're reporting being in a happier state. So I think that study uh, and, a, and a wealth of other evidence does suggest that that um, positive emotions are important for creativity. I haven't been able to link that yet to any of the, the neuroscience findings. I think that would really be really interesting to look into, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, which comes first? If you're happy, do you creative? If you're creative, are you happy? <laughs> yeah. Song there, song, right? <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> well, I will say there, there are, that one study I mentioned is correlational, um, but there are plenty of other experimental studies that will kind of try to induce people into a happy or sad state and then give them a creative task and they find find far better performance uh, on the conditions where they were doing something that put them yeah. in a happy state in terms yeah. of creative performance. Um, Roger, I had a sort of a or technical question or practical question. Um, I don't, I, I've been in one of those brain scanners. I don't know if it's an MRI or FMRI, but the one I was in is very noisy. Mm-hmm. Now, do the, is the FMRI, mm-hmm. are they noisy? Yes, very much so. Not the most inspiring place for creativity. I'll, I'll no, no, because, you know, I, I've seen like the, you know, all these studies and stuff and they, they never have the soundtrack from inside the room when people are doing these things. It must be very hard to do. 
because, you know, I've been in those things and it's like, I don't know, you're lying on the side of a highway or something. <laughs> it's enormous, you know, clunks and bangs and whirls. Um, yeah, it's funny. There's actually people that have made uh, mixtapes of, of like kind of electronic music from that, from the MRI sounds. <laughs> and like recorded them and like kind of sampled and they turned it into like a, a mixtape. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's totally noisy in there. And uh, yeah, I think you can kind of get around that a little bit by getting a kind of people used to it. Yeah, you can kind of do some practice. You kind of there's multiple layers of like ear protection that that go yeah. into it too. Like so, you, okay, you, know, you can kind of tune that out. I mean, I don't. Yeah, so I don't know when you were in there. Maybe you didn't have, you know, earplugs and a headset over top. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it, it is not the most uh, natural setting for for creativity. But you know, there's other imaging techniques. There's FNIRS, uh, functional near infrared spectroscopy, which is actually picking up on the uh, same signal as fMRI. You can't get to, you can't really scan the whole brain. It's mostly focused on the surface of the brain. Right, right. Um, but that is far less constraining. I mean, you can have people in more natural settings. You could have, you know, duos of, of musicians performing together, people working in teams. Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're using that more and more ourselves. Okay. Um, the, the other question is something that um, I'll probably get, I'm going to get a second opinion on this because it comes from uh, Scott Barry Kaufman's book, uh, Wide to oh, Create, yeah. and he's coming on the show uh, a little later. But he he talks about the similar thing, but I don't think he uses the same language. And he talks about the fact that highly creative people switch very quickly, you know, almost instantaneously, instantaneously between these two states. And as I said, I don't think he uses the same uh, terminology that you use, is it possible to do fMRI scans to see the speed of the switching? Like, so, you know, you get someone that's highly creative, so if you could have whacked Picasso in there and looked at his brain mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, someone not so creative, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, is it is it possible to see the, the, the speed of the switching or is that something that's not, not possible to pick up? Yeah, fMRI is not very good at picking up on temporal, anything that to do, with, to do with time, really. It's really it's picking up on a very slow signal. So it's picking up on blood flow, right. which is an indirect marker of neural activity. So if you really want to, to measure the, the, the time aspect of something, you want to look at EEG. Right. Um, and so you, you, know, you can get at things like looking at how often people switch between states. So that, that wouldn't really be the... the, the um, how quickly they do it, but you can see like how, how many times they're able to kind of switch on a given trial, for example. Right. Um, but yeah, with EEG, you could kind of get at that uh, question about the speed of, of switching. I, I'd love to have a question about the study of creativity, the kind of the broader topic. It, it seems to me, what, I, I keep asking myself, why aren't more people asking about the human brain in relation to creativity. It seems to me that kind of our, our world needs ideas more than ever. And therefore, we need to understand where they come from and how they're generated more than ever. And there's been lots and lots of work on the human brain in, in very other fields, particularly in the case, cases of, of kind of mental conditions and, and disease and so on. But the study of creativity in the human brain seems to be like a, a brand new topic, a very niche topic. And it's kind of a marginal area. It's not that important because it's only creativity. Is, is, is it an explosion of interest in this, or are we just all nerds together talking to ourselves? Oh, no. I mean, I would say that the field is really coming into its own right now. I mean, there have been people who have been working on 
neuroscience of creativity in some capacity for you know two decades or so but it's been really taking off in the past five plus years um and there's you know there's a society for the neuroscience of creativity right now that is really uh taking off in terms of membership and our meetings are i'm I'm involved with that organization our meetings are kind of growing more and more every year there's more and more students getting into the field it's a really exciting time to be doing this work and i can I would say maybe the reason why people have been hesitant is because it's not as straightforward of a, of a topic to study. I mean, if you want to study memory, like, you know, there's, there's pretty, uh, you know, concrete ways of measuring if someone has, you know, a good or bad memory, you know, whereas, you know, what, what's a, a more or less creative idea is a little thornier mm-hmm. of, of a topic. So I think, you know, it's, 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 been, it's been considered fringe for a while, but I, I feel like it's coming around to more mainstream these days. Um, Roger, you you talked about society. I see also you're a member of a thing called the Sonophilia Foundation. Um, Is that the society you're talking about or is that something else? It's something else. We're kind of um, communicating or working together. Yeah, the Sonophilia, tell us about that. I just see on your page on the Sonophilia, it says we track activity and communication between brain regions when people think creatively, which is a fantastic snapshot um, what do you think? So, so what? What? And I, I love their mission. You know, like it's just it's just, I, I, it's only because researching you that I've heard about it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that foundation? Sure. So they are um, a nonprofit that is based out of Germany, and their mission is really to promote creativity and creativity research in society, pretty pretty bar- broadly. And so it's kind of like a networking hub between. Um, research and um, public and ind- industry and, and nonprofit and education and a lot of different stakeholders, but uh, they'll do things like science communication and, and connecting researchers with policymakers and industry. And, um, and so, yeah, they've been around for a few years. And um, uh, one example of one of their uh, projects is, as I mentioned, science communication. So they kind of went, they scoured the literature and looked for kind of what we know about creativity. And they came up with this fact book, which is kind of, um, you know, the most reliable findings in the literature. I mean, I'm hesitant to call it facts, but kind of mm-hmm. well-supported findings. And so they kind of put together this, this book and they're going to publish it soon. One of my graduate students, Hannah Murcio was involved in kind of putting together the, the book. Um, and so that's one thing they're doing. There's a, you know, they're, they're, they're um, they put together a conference. I was just at a conference in, in Austria and, in Salzburg, which is absolutely uh, beautiful there. Um, we stayed in the, in, the, in the Sound of Music Hotel. I'm not sure if that's what it's called officially, but that's how I know it. Um, I've got a mental image of everybody sort of dancing on those steps. That's exactly what it was yeah, like the whole time, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that brought together, you know, people from, again, uh, academia, industry, and policymakers, and, uh, just kind of, you know, trying to get on the same page on what we think is important about about creativity and a lot of networking and, and stuff like that. So I think it's a, it's a great organization, and I'm I'm biased because I'm I'm involved with them, but you know I think they're also like a case of uh, a growing um, organization in the field right now that's doing a lot of good work. When's the book coming out, and what's it going to be called? That uh, I believe it's called the the Creativity Fact Book, um, and I. If it's not out, it's getting really close. I think they're just putting the finishing touches on it right now. Right. It's going to be really accessible, you know, just little blur, like single, you know, sentence or so about main findings. And um, it will kind of have the references behind everything, too. So 
the goal is mm-hmm. to really make it accessible for the general public, not to make it like an academic kind of thing. Right. It'll, it'll go down a tree in Australia. Um, Australia prides itself on naming things very, very clearly. There's a place near me called Sandy Beach, and there's the Snowy Mountains. So the creativity fact book, everyone will get that. It's brilliant. <laughs> All right. The sales will be off the charts in Australia then. <laughs> and what about the society that you're a member of that you mentioned as well? I, I like. Is, it, is this a secret society about the neuroscience of creativity? I love the idea of that. Oh, no, it's very much an open society, although we have secret meetings, I guess, as well. Um, just the executive committee meetings. So, but anyway, yeah, so it's, it's very much an open group. I mean, any, anyone could be a member. And, you know, it's called Neuroscience of, Society for Neuroscience of Creativity. But really, we welcome anyone that's interested in creativity and studying creativity from different perspectives. And, you know, we have a contingent, a big contingent of people who are studying the brain. Um, but we also have people who are... Um, uh, coming from cognitive psychology and um, education. Uh, we have industry uh, people involved as well. Um, yeah, so it's really, I mean, it's called Neuroscience Cyber, Neuroscience of Creativity, but it's really, we're trying to be inclusive and uh, we're growing our membership well, uh, well beyond the handful of neuroscientists that are doing this work. I, I, I want to join. I don't know about Chris, but I want to be a member of. Oh, I definitely want to join, just just so I can say I'm a member of the Society for Neuroscience. I mean, that's oh, check going it to impress out. my mates so much. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we actually have a, a meeting uh, or an event coming up on Friday, um, where we do something called a crosstalk, which is a conversation between um, a creative and um, a researcher, a scientist, a scientist and a a creative professional, kind of. Um, and we had a Kenji Kenji Lopez. Uh, on before, who is a, a chef. Uh, this um, Friday, we'll have a conversation with um, someone who works at Pixar Studios and wow. who studies studies the science of stories. And they'll kind of have a conversation there, and we'll have another meeting on um, creativity interventions and kind of how and whether creativity can be enhanced in different ways. And there'll be a panel of people who are working on uh, enhancing creativity. So. Definitely check nice. it out. Mm, yeah, we will. That, that sounds fantastic. Definitely want to check that out. Roger, I wonder if you can kind of maybe predict what's going to be in the creativity fact book or help, help us with some practical tips. I'm, I'm just wondering is that what would a listener to this show, what can they do? I'm guessing you're aware of some very simple things that people can do in their everyday lives to just kind of either manage or boost their creativity or increase their creative confidence in some way. What, what, what can ordinary mortals do to help supercharge their creativity? <laughs> well, I've already listened to your, your podcast with Jonathan Schooler, so I won't go too far down the, the mind-wandering route there. <laughs> just kind of the idea of taking a break. You know, there is some evidence there. You know, instead of just kind of working uh, nonstop on a problem to, t- to take some time away from it and let your mind wander and just kind of reset and uh, shuffle the things in your mind that you're, 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 you're trying to piece together there. I mean, there, I think there is um, some good evidence uh, on that, on, on the uh, benefits of taking a break. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier about um, mood and creativity, you know, um, you know, to the extent that people can try to put themselves in, in a good mood or to, to capitalize when the, the times that they are in a good mood. Um, you know, there, there's, as I mentioned, plenty of research showing the benefits of positive mood for, for creative thinking. Yep, yep. 
So those are a couple of things. I mean, in terms of things that we've done, I mean, we've done kind of um, brief interventions trying to uh, get people to be more imaginative, to kind of really focus on um, the details of, of to kind of imagine uh, a future experience for to draw, even really thinking about a past experience, um, any kind of memory that you can think of recently, and to really focus on the details of that and to to kind of really get your brain going on the on the details of that memory, we've found that in a kind of in a you know brief laboratory experiments that that has a boost on at least the number of ideas people come up with mm-hmm. because it, because it engages the default network. We found mm-hmm. that we've done the study. It's called episodic specificity induction, and it's really um, is based on actually is based on um, uh, boosting eyewitness testimony in courtrooms. So getting people to really jog their memory and to be as specific as they can when they're remembering something. Um, we put people in a scanner when, and we kind of uh, got them to try to remember a recent experience in as much detail as they can. And then we had them do a divergent thinking task, and we found that that intervention boosted the number of ideas they came up with. Mm-hmm. And that was through engaging the hippocampus, which is kind of part of the default network. So I'm just trying to apply that. You might uh, challenge people to think of an event, recent event, and then bring it to life either mentally or in as much detail as they can. Think about, I don't know, the sounds, the colours, the faces, the little, what you noticed, yes. what you heard, all those kinds of mm-hmm. and, and then you go, right, what can you do with a paperclip or something? And they're likely to come up with better solutions having done that. I would say... That's a very good characterization of what I, I said, but the last thing being they're more likely to come up with more ideas. That's what we, we found is that it's more about the, the fluency or the number of ideas people came up with and not necessarily it, – it's really hard to boost the, the quality of the ideas we're finding. That it's, it's, but, you know, to the extent that the number of ideas you come up with might be, you know, uh, associated with having better ideas, um, then, yeah, I, I would say that that's – that's something you could definitely try. There's one tip that, that and I, I forget exactly who shared it with us, but the, the idea was to, to become a student of yourself, to ob- observe your own brain in action and to kind of note what makes it do certain things at certain times. I'm guessing journaling, for example, would be a good way of doing that or just being mm-hmm. super aware. I'm, I'm responding in this way. Is that... A way of is it just a way of becoming a better academic, or is it actually a way of becoming a better creative? Do you think? Um, that's not something that I've done a lot of research on, but I mean, I think there there is some research on you know what I would say is like metacognition or kind of thinking about your own thinking that is uh, associated with with creativity. There, there are people who actually are doing that on on what's called creative metacognition, so observing your own thinking and kind of. Uh, reflecting more and, and getting a better understanding on how your mind works. Um, there's also, I know you talked to Jonathan Schooler about mindfulness, yeah, kind yeah. of watching your mind and kind of getting a, a better understanding of your your tendencies of how your, your mind works. I mean, that I think there's some, some evidence to suggest that that is uh, associated with, with creativity to some extent. Okay. Mm. Roger, one of the things that I just, I just took away from the conversation there, that thing you mentioned about the detail, and, you know, I'm a broad thinker and, and it's never really occurred to me. I was just recently reading uh, in a book and I, someone d- does this exercise where they actually get a photo that's, you know, quite a complex photo 
but it's got a, a character in the middle of it. Normally, we just look at the character, and they get people to spend hours looking at the detail of the photo and to create, you know, to really sort of boost their creativity. So that's something that I'm going to take away from this about looking at the detail. Um, I'm, I'm an architect by profession. There's this famous oh, okay. quote, God, God, God is in the details. Um, so, so maybe the creative God is also in the details. <laughs> well, uh, Paul, it's, it's, I've just challenged you on that, mate. If you, if, if you forget, Paul is a, is a kind of um, very successful watercolour artist. And one of the things, I hope you don't mind my saying this, Paul, Paul paints a lot of pictures of everyday objects, beautiful watercolours, things that would, would normally not be noticed, a teacup or a, an orange or whatever it might be. I think you're great at spotting the details of things that other people ignore you you're celebrating you're capturing them so but no it's more about that awareness thing you know i don't really you say i do that but i don't think about it so i think it's i think it's a really good really good insight um roger unfortunately our our time is coming to an end is there anything you'd like to sort of add um a a message to our audience uh or just uh you know an insight a last insight or something hmm well um yeah, I mean, I, I have to get going to trick or treating anyway. Right now, so. <laughs> I think it's a good time. I have to. Where can listeners find out more about you? We, um, I know you have a website. Is there any particular place you'd like them to go to find out more about you? Oh uh, yeah, I think my my lab website's a good place to go. Um, you know, anyone that's interested in, in learning more about about creativity uh, research, I would definitely encourage them to check out the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity. Um, and yeah, there's lots of exciting work happening out there. Fantastic. We'll put those links in the, in the show notes. Um, Roger, thank you so much for joining us and, uh, for your perseverance. We had, we had quite, uh, <laughs> quite a challenge to get us all together, but, uh, it was really been worth it. And, uh, you, you are, you're a hero of mine, Roger. And so I, I, I feel very privileged to spend this half hour with you. <laughs> thank you so much, Roger. I hope you have a great evening trick or treating as well. <laughs> Yeah, thank you both. I'm great. I'm glad to connect with you and, and take care. Okay. Cheers. Thank bye you. Now. All right. Bye now. Bye. What what an amazingly insightful show. I learned so much. I feel really excited about my own salient network. How weird is that? But it definitely means uh, we have a few new tools to supercharge creativity. I think, Chris, not only did we learn some tricks, we also had lots of treats. Uh, very, very fitting for recording it uh, on his Halloween. Look, look, a great episode. As we said, all the links will be in the show notes to the things that he spoke about. And look, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating, a review, and tell your friends. It will help us a lot, and we'll be very appreciative. We'd love to spread the word about creativity and its role in the workplace. So I hope to see you next week. Please tune in. Cheers.